There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kerminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, here we are for episode 82. Nice. Yes. And in episode 81, last week's episode, we had Michelle Houston join us to talk about having a money mindset. It's an interesting discussion. It was. But it got us talking about risk. As in her talk, she talked about the risk that business owners face in, I don't know, growing revenues or growing their business, things like that. But in our world, we view risk as investment risk, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, and it's something that we talk about all the time with people. Like, what's a question that we get all the time from people, Greg? How risky is it? Yeah. Or what's the market going to do? Yeah. Right? Like, what's the market going to do in the next six to 12 months? Yeah. And the answer, unfortunately, is like, who the heck knows, right? That's right. Right. So... When we talk about risk, Investopedia defines risk as, and I'm just going to read it, risk is defined in financial terms as the chance that an outcome or investment's actual gains will differ from an expected outcome or return, and it includes the possibility of losing some or all of an original investment. That sort of goes to a couple of different points, you know, because sometimes, as they say initially, the risk that you don't get the outcome that you were expecting. So when you think about that, you know, a lot of times people will say, okay, well, what has the stock market done over the last 100 years? And let's say the average return over the last 100 years has been 8% a year. So that sort of becomes the expected return. Well, we expect things to be roughly in line with what they historically have been over long, long periods of time. And so some people will say, okay, well, what if you get 4%? Well, that's a risk because you're expecting 8, you got 4. It's also, if you get 12%, that's actually the other side of risk. That's a positive risk which is one that we all delight in, but it's just the opposite side of not getting the expected rate of return. So that's one thing. But then the other thing which they point out is, well, what about the risk of losing everything, like losing all of your investment? And we've talked about that on previous episodes, and we'll talk about that again today, because that's the kind of thing that you can actually control. You can control the risk of losing everything, and we'll talk about that, but you can't really control the risk of getting a 0% rate of return on the market or a negative 10 on the market, that kind of thing. Well, and they talk about that as systematic versus unsystematic or idiosyncratic risk. That's right. right. So systematic risk being the risk of just being invested in the market where your expected return might be something like 8%, but your real return is going to be whatever the market returns. That's right? right. But the idiosyncratic risk or... I think it's called idiosyncratic, right? It is. It's called a number of things, specific risk, company risk, idiosyncratic risk. And I think it just means the same thing. It's not systematic risk. Right. It's risk that's outside of that, you know, market risk as a whole. But for our listeners, so like you can think of like systematic risk as just being invested, right, in the market. Right. And idiosyncratic risk as, I don't know, stock picking, right? That's right. Yeah. Or being in one sector which is doing poorly while the rest of the market is doing extremely well. Yeah. 
or vice versa. Right. So it's an interesting discussion because, you know, you talk about expected return. We expect the expected return to be this based on past historical data, but the reality is the real return will be whatever it is, right? That's right. So how does it relate to investors' risk? It's perceived risk. It's this perception versus real risk. And what you talked about is the perceptible risk. Is that a word? Perceptible? Sure. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) It is today. (laughs) Is that it's something that we're forecasting. And there's a number of academic models out there. One very famous one, the capital asset pricing model, which we've talked about in the past. And I know you're very familiar with, right? Somewhat. So just that it takes what we just talked about. If you want to figure out the return of a portfolio or the expected return of a portfolio, the capital asset pricing model says that the expected return of a portfolio equals the risk-free rate plus the beta times the market risk premium. Say what? I know. Let's talk about that in English for a second. So it means whatever return I'm expecting from my portfolio is made up of a couple of, of two functions. How much I've got invested in the risk-free rate, which is like US treasury bills, right? Known as the risk-free rate. Plus the sensitivity, the price sensitivity of my expected return of the market. So what you pointed out, that 8% rate minus the risk-free rate times some form of sensitivity. So when I say sensitivity, the market's beta, the market's sensitivity is calculated as one, right? right? So think of it this way. If we expect the market to return 8% and you just, I don't know, multiply that by one, it's 8%, right? That's right. So beta essentially is the market, the overall volatility of the market that we all experience every day as measured by an index of some kind or a benchmark of some kind. That's right. But the beta of our portfolio isn't going to be one. It's going to be different than one. It's going to be based on how much we have in, I don't know, stocks and bonds and whatever, right? Like our asset allocation kind of thing will determine that. So so I call this the brake and gas pedal portfolio that, you know, you've got basically only two pedals. You've got the brake, which is the risk-free rate, right? And the gas pedal, which is just the, what you expect to return from the market. And in that scenario, if you talk about it as risk, well, what's your risk? You're either all on the gas pedal, all on the brake pedal, or some combination thereof, right? Right. Yeah. So I don't know where I'm going with this. Well, it's kind of a simple way to think about asset allocation and how that affects your performance and the volatility of your portfolio, right? Because if you think about it, beta of the market includes the whole market. And so the market is made up of all of the stocks and individual stocks and sectors that comprise it. So in Canada, for example, we have a relatively heavy weighting towards financials and commodities, let's say. But the beta of the Canadian stock market reflects all of those put together. Now, certain portfolios may overweight certain types of securities within their portfolio. So, for example, energy stocks, for example, are typically more volatile than the market as a whole. And so if your portfolio is overweighted towards energy stocks, you're going to expect some extra volatility. Well, you want to be rewarded for that extra risk. That's right. Right. And so it may have a higher expected return. And what has it done in the last few years? Well, it's, it's certainly done well this year, but not so much last year. Right. And that's the volatility we're talking about. But that goes back to that expected return versus real return, right? Like people that invested in energy stocks predominantly 
wanted to be rewarded for that exposure, right? Yep. And they just weren't. Not last year, for example. Yeah, yeah for sure. absolutely, for sure. And so that's the thing. So, but again, you know, when you're talking market volatility or beta or alpha, which we haven't talked about yet, but these are all things that probably don't really matter to the individual investor. They matter, but they matter, you know, sort of under the hood. And to the average investor, it's like, well, yeah, but what does that mean? What's the risk I'm going to lose my money? Because I think in investor terms, they probably don't worry so much about, well, what's my deviation from the expected return this year? They care more about what is my expected return and let's hope that it's positive and not negative. You know, and so there's a lot of different kind of risks that we experience in investing and there's some risk that we experience by not investing. Why don't we dive in and talk about some of the different types of risks that we all experience? This kind of reminds me, do you ever... You ever go on the World Wide Web? Uh, yes, yes, you know, I do. Yeah. You know, the internet? Yeah, the interweb, yeah. And there's always a lot of these lists, you know, so there'll be like a headline, say, you know, 10 ways to improve your heart health. And then they'll go through 10 different things that you should do. And I feel like we're into one of those modes right now because we're talking about different types of risks. So let's dive in, slide one. And slide one, I think you've already talked about, but it's a little bit more than that. So we're going to talk about market risk. So we've already talked about, well, what's market risk? We talk about systematic risk. That's just the risk of being in the market. But there's also a couple of other market risks that don't specifically relate to how stocks as a group perform. And one of those is interest rate risk. So interest rates are something that affect all markets, stock markets, bond markets, that kind of thing. And it's just the rate, well, if interest rates change, that can have an effect on the market as a whole or on some individual stocks or sectors within the market, right? So interest rates going up can be beneficial for some types of companies, banks possibly. They'll earn more on their loan portfolios because of higher interest rates that they're charging their borrowers. But it might not be that good for certain sectors like real estate, for example, or utilities, where they're not as able to quickly react to changes in interest rates to improve their profitability because, of course, Real estate companies are heavily indebted, and as as mortgages are being renewed, they're being renewed at higher higher rates. But that interest rate movement, that's part of the monetary policy of the central bank, right? So if they're raising interest rates, well, actually, there's two different types of interest rates we should talk about. There's the nominal rate and the real rate, right? Yeah. So the nominal rate is that, that rate that the Bank of Canada lends to the banks, and they lend out that money to consumers or whatever. But the real rate is actually set by the market, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. And I guess the way to think about it is nominal rates are whatever the posted rates are. So it may also include, you know, what's the nominal rate on a GIC today? Well, it might be anywhere from one and a quarter percent to 2%, you know, depending on whether you're buying a one-year or a five-year GIC. So that's just the posted rate on the GIC. But the real rate is, well, what's the nominal rate, but what's inflation? You know, so the real rate is, well, gee, if I'm getting, you know, one and a quarter percent on a GIC and inflation is running at 4%, five, five percent, you know, I'm down 3.75%. But you haven't lost any money. That's right. (laughs) That's absolutely right. And that's where we, you know, maybe we should talk about inflation because inflation risk is one of those risks that's a risk of not being invested. 
And so if your money is sitting in under the mattress, buried in the backyard or, or in an account that doesn't pay any interest, then you're actually getting a 0% return on your money. But what about inflation? You know, so, and inflation is one of those things, it's, it's kind of subtle. You maybe don't notice it day after day. But if you think about just, you know, for the last number of years or maybe even decades, inflation has been quite low, maybe 2%, let's call it. So if you think about it, 2% inflation doesn't seem like a lot. But if your expenses today are $100,000 a year, 2% inflation for 10 years means that in 10 years, to get the same goods and services that cost $100,000 today, you would need $122,000 10 years from now. Did you just figure that out on the top of your head? You calculated that in advance. I did calculate that in (laughs) advance. And looking out 20 years, it's going to cost $149,000 to get the same thing that you're getting today for $100,000. And so it it is kind of insidious the way it snakes up on you. Now, here's the thing. Lately, inflation has been running a lot hotter, 4 to 5%, let's say. So remember I said at 2% inflation 10 years from now, $100,000 of services and goods would cost 122000 At 4%, it'll cost 148000 So Big difference. in 10 years, it's now costing you 48% more to get what you can get today. And in 20 years, that actually is 219000 So inflation has a very big impact on your purchasing power of your dollars. And so, so the risk of inflation means that money that's sitting and not earning anything is actually declining in value by whatever the rate of inflation is, 2 or 4% a year. So Greg, are we recommending that people maybe invest that money instead of just, I don't know, earning a negative real return? We absolutely, I would say, recommend that people have some money invested in the markets. Yeah. The big question is going to be how much. And so that's you know a discussion for advisors and their clients. But certainly having all of your money sitting, not earning anything is it's losing. Well, we spent a lot of time talking about inflation in the last few months because it's been so present in the headlines. But what are some other risks that we should be talking about today? Well, let's talk about liquidity risk. And what liquidity risk is, what's the risk? It's the risk of being unable to sell your investments at a fair price. You know, and so for instance, when we're talking about broad market investments, if you're buying an index or a mutual fund or something, those investments are very liquid you can get in and get out quite easily. But there's certain investments that aren't quite so easy to sell. And those would include things like certain what we call exempt market investments. So those are investments that you have to buy outside of the market, whether by private placement or offering memorandum, things like that. Something that most people will have more exposure to would be things like real estate. You know, real estate itself is, it's a marketable investment. There is certainly a demand for real estate. You know, if you want to sell your house, there's probably a buyer out there, but not particularly liquid. Meaning that if you needed to sell your house today and you felt your house was worth $600,000, there may not be a buyer today at that price. But even if you had a buyer at that price, even just the transaction turnaround time, because like, like you said, if you sell a stock, the transaction time is two days. Two day settlement. That's right. Two day settlement. If you sell your house today, you're not getting your money in two days. No. Right. There's going to be a barriers. (laughs) That's right. right. And there's lots of other types of investments that are just not as liquid. And so the risk of being in something illiquid increases your chance of a loss if you needed to sell something very quickly. 
So what's another one? Well, this is something we've talked about over and over again in these podcasts, and that's concentration risk. So that's the risk of having too much of your money invested in something, whether it's an individual stock or a particular sector of the markets. And that exposes you to what you talked about earlier, idiosyncratic or or non-systematic risk. So the market could be moving along just fine as it did back in 2020. But if you were overly concentrated, let's say, in energy stocks, or if you're overly concentrated in transportation or leisure and hospitality stocks, you would not have been doing as well as the market as a whole. But the flip side to that is if you were overly concentrated in tech stocks in 2020, you probably had a pretty rockin' return. That's right. And, and again, that gets to the two sides of, of risk, is there's upside risk and there's downside risk. And, and tech stocks in 2020 certainly outperformed the expected return while energy and travel and hospitality stocks underperformed. And so that's that just the risk of being not well enough diversified. Well, we've used this example many times, the get rich versus lose everything portfolio. That comes from concentration risk, right? Exactly. Like you can actually get rich if you have a concentrated portfolio of just a few names and they do well, right? That's right. You absolutely can. The problem is the odds aren't in your favor. Yes, you have to get lucky. And that's the hard part to predict. Well, and the flip side to that is you can lose everything. That's why it's called a get rich versus lose everything portfolio, right? Exactly. So if you invested in some names that aren't around anymore and you put all of your wealth into them, it's gone. That's right. And that's why for most of us humans, diversified portfolio that eliminates some of those risks, it limits your upside, but it limits your downside. And most of us react more negatively to to losing money than we do react positively to earning or gaining money. So wait a minute. Are you recommending that people diversify their risks? Yes, I am, Colin. Yeah. Okay, good. I just want to keep track of this. Yeah, for sure. All right. So what else? You know, the markets aren't only stock markets. Of course, as everyone knows, we also invest in bonds. Most balanced portfolios have exposure to bonds and bonds have some unique risk relative to stocks. and, And the key one is credit risk. And the credit risk is strictly the risk that the issuer of a particular bond either won't be able to pay the interest on that bond when it's due or won't be able to repay the principal when the bond matures. You're talking about Evergrande in China right now. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'm not talking about them specifically, but they're a good example. Are we recommending Evergrande <laughs> bonds? No, we're not. No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> but credit risk is obviously, and, and bond portfolio managers, of course, that spend a great deal of their time evaluating credit risk. And so when they include bonds in a portfolio, they're including bonds where they believe that the issuer has a very strong likelihood of paying the interest in the principal. Now, if the issuer maybe is suspect on their ability to repay the interest and principal, then the interest that they'll pay you must be a lot higher than the interest on something less risky, right? That's right. Yeah. And that gets into cost of capital. An issuer that has a higher risk profile, a lower credit rating, is going to have to offer a higher interest in order to attract a buyer for their particular bonds. You know, and the interesting thing is, well, how do you mitigate credit risk? Well, you mitigate credit risk by holding lots of bonds. If you have a portfolio of a thousand bonds, the risk of default of the overall portfolio is a whole lot less than the risk of default of a single issuer. Wait, we already recommended diversification. Now we're talking about diversifying your bonds too. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay, just keep in track. Okay. Well, and while we're talking about bonds, although this relates to stocks as well, another risk that people maybe don't think about every day is 
reinvestment risk. Mm -hmm. So what is reinvestment risk? Well, the reinvestment risk is the risk of a loss from reinvesting principal or interest at a lower rate than the original. So let's work this through. Let's say you buy a bond that in the good old days would have a 5% coupon rate, meaning that you would get 5% interest on your bond. Well, you know, here we are 10 years later and a 10-year bond today is yielding only 1.6%, let's say. So now you've got a bond that you've, you know, you've been earning 5% for the last 10 years and now the next 10 years is going to be 1.6%. So that's a loss relative to the original investment. So that is something that happens in a period of declining interest rates where all the cash flows from your bond, the interest payments you get every year or the maturity principal is going to get reinvested at a lower rate. Now, the other side of that, of course, and we've talked about risk, you know, there's negative and positive risk. Reinvestment risk at times like we're in today is actually positive. It's a benefit to your portfolio because with interest rates rising, all of the cash flows that we get from bonds, whether it's from their interest payments or the maturities, can now be reinvested at a higher rate than we're currently earning. So, And it's within reason, right? Like the U.S. 10-year treasury has moved up from 1.1% yes. six months ago yeah. to, I think it's just under 1.5% That's today. right. That's right. But to your point, 1.5 is higher than 1.1. It is. And so that benefits the portfolio. So that's that's a positive risk in today's environment. Right on. What else? How about horizon risk? You know, you don't hear about that a lot, but what is horizon risk? Well, you know, everybody has an investment horizon. So when we sit down and we talk to people and, and do our financial planning, it's like, well, when are you going to need this money? You know, if we're doing retirement planning, for example, and it's like, well, I plan to retire in 10 years. Well, things can happen that can shorten that investment horizon because of unforeseen events. So, yeah, you know, for example, there could be health issues. You might, uh, you know, lose a job and all of a divorce. sudden, a divorce for sure. All of a sudden that 10 year time horizon is gone and the time horizon is now tomorrow. So there's certainly a risk because if you're in a balanced or a stock-weighted portfolio and you've just come through a volatile time and the markets are down 20%, which can certainly happen, the timing may not be great for liquidating assets. No, that's a good point. Actually, maybe we should talk about sequential risk as an offshoot of that. For sure. Right? So tell us what sequential risk is, Greg. Well, sequential risk is just the risk of the timing of returns when you're withdrawing funds from a portfolio. Yeah. So what do we mean by that? Well, listen, you could have a whole range of returns in a portfolio where you're not pulling any money out. So it's, this is just investments that are there for 10 years. You could get 20% you know, return in year one and negative 20 in year two and 15 in year three and minus eight in year four. It doesn't matter. And if you got exactly the same returns in another portfolio, but in a different order, where you got negative returns in the first year and positive returns in the second year and so on, doesn't matter. The end value of the portfolio is the same in either scenario. So the order if of- If you don't take money out. If you don't take money out. So the order of returns has no impact on the final value of a portfolio, assuming you get the same returns every year, but not in the same order. Yeah. Order doesn't matter. When you're taking money from a portfolio, so let's say you've built a portfolio and now you've retired and you're pulling out 5% of your portfolio every year, for cash flow to live on, then the order of returns makes a big difference. So this is like somebody who retired in 2008, yes. right? At the beginning of the global credit crisis, 
As we know, the stock market went down 50 or so percent between 2008 and 2009. Correct. If you were forced to withdraw from your portfolio and you had a 100% stock portfolio and it was down 50%, then you've lost years of future income. That's right. right. That's right. You can never make it back. And so once you start withdrawing funds, the hope, of course, is that your positive returns will be early in the in the period and the negative returns will happen later. Because if the opposite happens, if the negative returns, as you point out, back in 2008, or let's say early 2020, then that can have a devastating impact on how quickly the portfolio declines with the 5% withdrawals. And so sequential risk, very important when you're withdrawing funds. And it speaks to, you know, a lot of people over the years have said, oh, well, of course you want your portfolio to be less volatile, you know, as you get older or once you retire. And people sort of, I think, intuitively think that, but not exactly understanding why that is. And one of the reasons why that is, is just because of the sequential risk and the risk of getting, you know, returns in the wrong order. And what tool can investors use to offset sequential risk? Well, I would think proper asset allocation and proper planning with your advisor. Yeah. So again, Greg, I hate to say it, but are we recommending that people review their asset allocation? Yes, I believe we are. Yeah, like all the time. In the strongest possible terms. Yeah. And I think where people kind of lose it, not lose it, but lose track of it as well, is that I think in general, people understand, you know, you need to be diversified. You need to focus on an asset allocation based on a plan, that sort of stuff. But there's a critical part missing there, and that's the rebalancing piece. Mm-hmm. So when you go through a period like 2008, where the market's down 50%, well, your bonds weren't down 50%, right? No, they were positive. Yeah. So if your bonds went up, I don't know, I'll just give it a number, 10% in value, although I think it was more like 20%, then during that period, if you sold that amount of bonds that were up 10% and bought equities that were down 50%, you have sequential risk working for you. And it's also the power of rebalancing is in the rebalancing process, forcing you to sell high and buy low, which everybody wants to do. Everybody's goal is to buy low and sell high. And rebalancing does that for you without you having to make predictions about whether now is a good time or a bad time to buy. And emotionally is hard to do on your own, I would argue, right? So you have to have it pretty structured. Now, we did a little example here. We said the order of returns example. So we took a million dollars. We just put it into a four-year period. The first series of payments, not payments, but returns was plus 20, minus 20, plus 20, minus 20, right? And then we just did the inverse. So a million dollars in the first year was minus 20, then plus 20, minus 20, plus 20, right? So in year two, how do you think the portfolios were as far as dollar amounts? Similar, different, year two, plus 20, minus 20. Obviously, the minus 20 is going to be a little bit worse. Oh, no, no. Year two, though. Year two. So they've both gone minus 20 or plus 20 and then minus 20 or plus 20. That should be the same. Yeah, that's right. It's equal, right? But year three, there's a massive gap. Sure there is. Right? So the first portfolio in year three was worth 1.152 million. That's the one that went plus 20, minus 20, plus 20. Sure. Right? The second portfolio that went minus 20, plus 20, minus 20, was 768,000. It's a pretty significant difference. It's a big right? difference. And, and I think if what you want to do is look at that in either scenario and imagine, okay, well, let's say on top of that, you were pulling money out of the portfolio mm-hmm. at the rate of 5%. 
that's just going to have an even stronger impact on the overall value of the portfolio at that time. Now, let's hope that this person was lucky and didn't have to pull any money out in year three from the down portfolio. That's right. In year four, what happened? What happened to the numbers? The portfolios will be exactly the same. They're the same again, right? So, yeah. So that's the point of it is, like you said, it's not the order of returns that, like that will just equal over time, but it's, well, do you have to start taking money out? Exactly. You know, and so it gets back to, you know, really the importance of planning in the whole piece. And when you talk about, well, the need to revisit your asset allocation, absolutely there's a need to revisit that. The, you know, the change from working to retiring is an incredibly significant change that obviously will have been pre-planned, you know, from the standpoint of financial planning and retirement planning. But then at that moment, and probably somewhat in advance, there's a need to revisit the investment plan as well and make sure that the investment plan accounts for the higher risk to the portfolio because of things like sequential risk and, and inflation. So are you recommending people do planning? Yes, I am, Colin. Yeah, that's a strong yeah. recommendation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think that's when we look at some of these risks. And, and listen, you know, we could sit here and, and we haven't listed every risk. And I kind of think about it, you know, when you see ads for pharmaceutical products on the television, and let's say they're, the products are, you know, the drugs are designed to treat a skin condition, for example. And then they go through the list of possible side effects. Yeah, they scare the crap out of me. <laughs> you know, and there are way more side effects than there are, you know, the initial disease issue that the drug is trying to solve. You sort of feel that way when you go through all of these risks. You know, you identify what could go wrong. But I think the thing we have to keep in mind is that not all risks are unmanageable. There are risks that we can control. And so the idea is not to scare people away from investing in stocks and bonds, because as we talked about, you can't leave your money sitting in cash because then inflation risk, it's going to slowly eat away the value of your investments or the value of your money, as opposed to some of these other market risks, which may be a little bit more dramatic, but over the long run have been shown to be mitigated sure. by time. You know, and so I, th I think the key idea here is not to be scared off by the risks, but to understand them, to control the risks that we can control, and then to accept the risks that we can't, like market risk, and make sure that the portfolios that we build, you know, reflect those risks and, and account for them all. Yep. So I guess we're talking about asset allocation again. Well, maybe we should wrap it up there. What do you think? Absolutely. I, yep. You know, just to summarize, because we've given a number of specific recommendations during this episode, Greg. Very specific. Like, Absolutely. Let me summarize them. Please do. We recommend that you be invested. Correct. Yes. We recommend that you be diversified. Absolutely. We recommend that you focus on your asset allocation. Right. And we recommend that you do financial planning. I think you've nailed it. Those are bold recommendations. They are. Yeah. They are. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's it. Yeah. I think it's worthwhile, particularly at times like this when there's lots of news in the markets and lots of volatility. You know, every time the market goes up six or 800 points, everyone asks, okay, should we have bought? You know, why didn't we buy yesterday? And what's going to happen tomorrow? And if it goes down 600 points, the same discussion on the other side. So as more volatility comes into the markets, we have to revisit discussions of risk and make sure that we understand what's happening and do we need to make changes based on that volatility. Right on. Well said. Well, in that case, let's leave it at that and we'll be back next week. Yep. Till next time. 
thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.